Hello and welcome to The Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Climate Hambrose. In this series, we explore how to simplify life's financial challenges and ask what responsibility means in the current world. My name is Rebecca Constable, Private Client Director and Head of Philanthropy, and I will be your host today. The global pandemic has exposed and exacerbated inequalities throughout society. As lockdown restrictions were imposed, the desperate need for a safe, stable home became clear and pressure on frontline services grew. What are the biggest misconceptions about homelessness? How can individuals and institutions help to combat the ongoing housing emergency? I am delighted today that we are joined by Polly Neat, CEO of the housing and homelessness charity Shelter, Climate Hambro's UK charity partner. Polly is a prominent commentator on housing, social justice, leadership and feminism. Highly experienced, she was previously CEO of Women's Aid and Executive Director at Action for Children and was awarded a CBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours list. Congratulations, Polly, and welcome. Thank you. It's absolutely brilliant to be here and have a chance to talk to you about the partnership and about shelter and what we do. Um, I'm really excited. Polly, it's a great pleasure from our side to be able to spend time with you this afternoon. Thank you so much. The work that you and Shelter does is, is truly inspirational. And as a corporate partner, we're thrilled to be able to spend some time together today to get to know you and to get to know about the fantastic work that Shelter does. The desperate need for a home, uh, I think you've referred to it as a human right, is one of the most pressing social justice issues of our time. How does Shelter support those facing homelessness, poor living conditions and the threat of eviction? Well, just first of all, I mean, I can talk about Shelter all day, but just to say, I'm really happy that you introduced by saying that it's one of the most pressing social justice issues of our time, because actually, I think what we've really seen through the pandemic is we all deeply feel now how much that's the case. We've all been stuck in our own homes uh, and some of us have been pretty lucky to have nice environments to be locked down in or, or self-isolating if we've had to do that. And I think we've all really, it's come home to us how intimately linked this issue is with the other issues that we care so much about, like healthcare and like education. If you think about a single mum with three kids in one room in a bed and breakfast trying to look after her kids' health and education during a pandemic, you begin to see the truth of what you just said, Rebecca, which is that a safe home should be a right and is one of the most pressing issues. In terms of what we do, so we have uh, an emergency helpline. Um, we helped about 34,000 households last year through that. Um, we also have local support services, which helped about 25,000 households in the last year. And then we have advice and services and live chat on our web pages as well. Uh, and through those, we've reached nearly 7 million people in England and Scotland in the last year. We also have legal advice services. And it's really important at Shelter, we achieve our mission in two ways. So all of that that I've talked about, about helping individuals directly, that's one way. And the other thing we do is campaign for change. 
Because if we don't change things, if we don't make housing the most pressing social justice issue as it should be, then nothing will ever improve for those people and we'll just be here forever picking up the pieces. So we also campaign for change and we've had some great victories over the past year despite the pandemic, including the evictions ban, for example, which we urged government to implement. And we work in communities as well to try and remove some of the systemic issues and blockers that are causing people to have to seek our help. I mean, as we sit here, it's hard to imagine that every 13 minutes a family in England becomes homeless. You know, in a G7 developed country, how can this be? Uh, And I suppose my real question is, what's the root causes of the housing emergency? And what is Shelter doing to overcome it? So the main root cause of the housing emergency is we simply do not have homes that people on low incomes can afford to live in. So for those people who are becoming homeless, and you rightly said, a household every 13 minutes, the fundamental reason for that is they can't afford to live anywhere. So they are either in private renting where, you know, that becomes unaffordable uh, and they get evicted. So that's a very common cause of homelessness. Or there's some other cause like domestic abuse or other form of family breakdown. But either way, the root cause of it is that having been through that experience, they then can't afford to live anywhere. So the real scandal despite all the talk about affordable housing, there actually isn't affordable housing for millions of people in our country. And if you look at social housing, which is what affordable, properly affordable housing is is known as, we only built about 6,000 new social homes last year. And that's against the waiting list of 1.15 million. So 6,000, tiny, tiny little number compared to 1.15 million, massive, massive number. I'm not as numerate as most people listening to this, but even I can see that that isn't working. And actually, if you take account of demolitions, sales of social housing, we actually last year delivered minus 22,000 social homes. So we had 22,000 fewer homes for people on low incomes by the end of last year than we had at the beginning of it. So that's the root cause of the crisis. So like so many social issues, I know you know that there are many misconceptions around the whole concept of of homelessness. You know, it's not just about people sleeping rough on the street, as distressing as it is to see that. Can you talk us through some of the misconceptions around homelessness? And, you know, I suppose there's two women sitting together this afternoon chatting, you know, are women and children disproportionately affected? So I think the biggest misconception about homelessness is what you actually just said, Rebecca, which is when people hear the word homelessness, they think about rough sleepers. And I mean, obviously, Nobody wants to see anyone sleeping rough, but that is the tip of a huge iceberg of people who are actually homeless. So we at Shelter have many outreach services which are focused on rough sleeping, um, and some of them are really innovative. So, for example, we employ former rough sleepers to reach out to people currently sleeping rough because we find that that helps to build the trust that people in that situation have so often lost in their lives. But we have to remember that in total, there are more than 250,000 people 
who are homeless in England. That's just in England. And these are individuals and families who are in hostels, B&Bs, sofa surfing or sleeping rough. And people move in and out of those as well. So people move in and out of sofa surfing and rough sleeping, for example. So it's quite a, a shifting population often. And you're absolutely right that women are disproportionately affected, and in particular, single parents. So if you think about single parents, 90% of single parents are women. 65%, so two-thirds, basically, of single parents don't have a safe or secure home. Two-thirds of single parents. So that is predominantly single mums and their children, And we only just actually, just in the last couple of months, did the research that came up with that statistic. And actually, even I was horrified by that. I was shocked. And it takes a lot to shock me at this point. The other thing uh, that also disproportionately impacts women is that even before lockdown, we knew that one in eight cases of homelessness were as a result of domestic violence. Well, we've seen domestic violence increase during lockdown and there's an increase post lockdown of people women in the main fleeing domestic abuse so we are very concerned now about the extent of homelessness among women getting even worse so yes so uh, single parents are disproportionately affected but so also are people of color as well and people with disabilities so people who are in marginalized groups anyway are all basically disproportionately impacted by homelessness. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And I think what people don't envisage when they think about homelessness, they don't envisage that single mum and her kids. But at shelter, that's who we see day in and day out. And the level of despair that these women and their children are dealing with is deeply shocking. I still find it shocking talking to people um, even now, you know, definitely. Perhaps if we could just focus a bit on a fantastic campaign that you have uh, initiated this year. Um, We're in an era of data and statistics and your recent Fight for Home campaign reveals, you know, pretty unfiltered truth that I think is, as you say, one in three people in Britain, uh, something like 17.5 million people or 34% are affected by, by the housing emergency. It's a very bold campaign and it's based on clients who use shelter services. Can you tell us more about the campaign's genesis and the impact so far? Well, I talked a bit earlier about our kind of core thought behind the campaign was, I think, the realisation that so many of us shared during the pandemic that home is everything. You know, if you don't have a safe or secure home, when something difficult happens, you are really vulnerable. And I think that is, that is homelessness. So we've all experienced now something really bad happening. And most of us did have a safe and secure home. And that's what got us through. That's what kept us safe. And that's what stopped a bad thing happening, ruining our lives. But what we saw at Shelter was that for millions of people, that bad thing happening did ruin their lives because they didn't have a safe or secure home. And I think, you know, the pandemic really brought that home to us 
And we were moved to launch the campaign uh, and to do some more research to really find out the extent of this because of what we were seeing. You know, um, when you look at some of the people who have come to seek our help, if you think about, so I met a woman called Lindsay. She's a frontline carer. She was served an eviction notice on her home. She has a young child with autism and she couldn't afford her rent, even though she had a job. She was served an eviction notice she now has nowhere to go. She has no option other than a B&B. This is somebody who's working, albeit on a low income, and she simply cannot afford anywhere to live. Or someone like Nicola, whose pay was cut when she was on furlough, even though that pay cut on furlough for, for many people was fairly marginal, if you're on a low income, that meant she was left to choose between rent and food. She couldn't afford her rent unless she went to a food bank. Or Diva lost her job on the same day as her husband lost his job. And again, she was left relying on food banks because universal credit simply couldn't meet the needs of their family. So when we were faced with cases like that, that's only three people. I'm talking about every single day. We were getting more and more people and it really motivated us to bring people together with a clear message. And that's what we hope the fight for home does is to just to bring people together to say we really do need to change we need to reform renting we need to demand more social homes and we need to see an end to discrimination and injustice in our housing system and what's been the impact so far on that we've had a huge amount of media coverage uh, we've had a lot of politicians from all parties come forward to support the campaign um, we've had quite a lot of celebrity support most of all of course our shelter supporters so we've brought more supporters into the organization and we've also had you know a huge response from our supporters and our donors writing to their MPs supporting our services and getting behind the call for um, a safe home, you know, that, you know, we can't be, we put up with problems in our housing system that if they were in other public services like the NHS, for example, you know, we just wouldn't put up with it. But somehow this problem is hidden. And I guess the whole point of the fight for home in a nutshell is to stop it being a hidden issue. Perhaps if we can sort of focus a bit more on the recent situation and the pandemic. As, and as you say, Polly, it's something that has influenced all of us in different ways. We have witnessed some inspiring community support during the last 18 months. And, you know, there have been some high profile measures such as everyone in to ensure that rough sleepers, you know, are given a safe harbour. And as you mentioned, the eviction ban. But sadly, I fear from what you've said and what I've read that, you know, the pandemic's only increased inequality within our housing system. Do you feel that we've seen the full impact of the pandemic on the UK housing emergency, on those who continue to be the worst affected? Or, or do you think the statistics are just going to get worse? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sort of throughout this conversation just be relentlessly negative about everything. Um, but I do have to say, um, yes, I think it, it is going to get worse. I mean, the government deserves full credit, actually, for the emergency measures that it took during the pandemic. We pushed very hard for the evictions ban. The government listened and they did put that in place. And that was brilliant. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that and everyone in were life-saving measures that the government took, without a doubt. So I don't want to, I don't want to take away from that. 
The problem we've got, though, is that there was an underlying crisis anyway. We all knew there was a housing crisis before the pandemic. And now this crisis has taken on, you know, emergency proportions, frankly. And what we're not seeing from government is a willingness to address the underlying causes of that crisis. Um, one of the things that we do really need to happen, um, so the government has committed to a renters' reform bill, and one of the things that is going to do, we hope, is get rid of no-fault evictions or Section 21 evictions. It wouldn't solve the underlying crisis, which is about a shortage of supply of homes, but it would act to protect some people who are otherwise going to become incredibly vulnerable. And of course, coronavirus has derailed the government's legislative agenda. But one of the things that we are pushing for is to please bring that bill forward as soon as possible. Let's not let it be delayed, because actually coronavirus, far from delaying it, should be making it appear all the more urgent in the government's mind. We know that charities have also, I'm afraid, had a very challenging time. Uh, It's been very difficult to fundraise in the traditional ways. Donations and fundraising have significantly reduced. And as we've touched upon, clearly, the social needs and inequalities have, you know, increased. How has Shelter as a charity fared throughout the pandemic? Uh, And what are you most proud of when you look back over the last 18 months? So I think our pandemic story at Shelter is one of sort of there's a really bad side to it and there's a really good side to it so the really bad side to it is that obviously the pandemic did torpedo many of our traditional fundraising channels as you've said so all of our shops had have had to shut up for months on end for a kickoff so we've lost considerable amounts of income through that fundraising events that we're very dependent on both things like the london marathon which was cancelled obviously but also our own fundraising events as well have had to be cancelled and we haven't been able to be out on the streets signing up donors and all of that so that did have a really serious impact on us And I should say as well that that uh, financial problem coincided with a very dramatic increase, as I've already said, in demand for our support. So we were seeing, you know, increase in demand, big reduction in the resources to meet that demand. But we do actually have the best team in the business, I've got to say. Like, And I'm not just saying that, we really, really do. So we launched an emergency appeal really quickly a lot of our donors, and particularly philanthropists and major donors, responded in a beyond generous way to that emergency appeal. I think people really got what was happening and why our services had to keep going. And we had an incredibly generous response, as I say, and we were actually able to answer double the number of calls to our emergency helpline that we did the previous year partly through the support of our donors and partly through we moved a lot of our staff onto the helpline because we could see that was going to be initially where we were going to be most needed. So so I think what I would say is, yeah, it was bad, but also thanks to my colleagues and our supporters, we actually, I think, I'm really proud of what we did. And also because 
we were very fortunate, although one might say you make your own luck on this, but we were very fortunate in that we entered the pandemic in a very good place as an organisation. Yes, we did draw on our reserves. That's what reserves are for. But we're coming out of the pandemic in solid shape. We're not vulnerable. We're able to launch a big new campaign, as you've said, which is really badly needed. And all in all, you know, we're okay. And and most importantly, we're still here for the people who need us. And if I can just give you an example of how dedicated colleagues have been. So one of my colleagues called Nadine, who's one of our expert advisors who works on our helpline, he was visiting family in Pakistan when the first lockdown hit. So he was on annual leave. He was away in Pakistan and he couldn't come back to England because of lockdown. And so he was sitting on the roof of the family home in Pakistan, logging on and answering calls on our helpline. Amazing. From people becoming homeless in the UK. Like, amazing. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. So, like, yeah. there's some, and there's lots of stories like that. That's one of the most sort of dramatic. But there's, you know, the commitment of the people who work at Shelter. Going back to your question, what am I most proud of? That's what I'm most proud of. So, Polly, you are an optimist. And I know, I know you're a problem solver as well. And I think broadly I'm an optimist as well. And many of our clients, you know, actually, interestingly, across the generation are inspiring philanthropists. Um, So they give their time, they give their expertise and they give finance to help fix problems that perhaps can't be fixed alone through public or other private finance. Have you seen examples of, of, of how philanthropists have been involved throughout the pandemic? And what role do you see philanthropy having at Shelter? One of the really important things about philanthropists is that they engage with the cause and the complexity around the cause in a way that other donors, so our uh, lower level, larger number of donors who we're absolutely dependent on and that they're amazing, but they don't have the time and space to engage in the way that philanthropists do with the cause and really understand the kind of depth of what's happening. And I guess my hope would be that philanthropists can help us to achieve real change by looking with us at what is coming down the road and helping us to prepare for it and really helping us to think about how we need to invest, which we do, in the organisation in order to meet the next level of need that is coming down the track. So I think that's, I guess, what I would say is that philanthropists have been absolutely key to keeping us going so far in the pandemic in responding to our emergency appeal, as I said, in an in a incredibly generous way. And frankly, you know, without that, mm. with all the great stuff I was talking about wouldn't have happened. But um, going forward, I think there's a real opportunity to engage with the future problem with the fight for home Mm. uh, and to kind of work with us to look at what that looks like and what's what we need to do to kind of meet that need because we are really reaching a crucial time now in the housing emergency protections are being lifted um, furloughs coming to an end and there's a lot of signs that for most of us the economy is recovering A lot of people, middle class people, if you like, have saved quite a lot of money during the pandemic 
and now they're going to spend it. And there's a lot of signs that, you know, in many ways, that's going to be good times for a lot of people. But there's a group of people that we work with and support where good times are not coming. Mm. And they're going to be even more left behind and that gap is going to become even more acute. And their home is at the very centre of that. Because as I keep saying, you know, if we're not making the case for building homes that people on low incomes can actually afford to live in, then we're storing up problems for ourselves for the future. So I hope that philanthropists will be able to engage with that. And I guess the other thing is, to be able to reach out and connect new people to shelter because we need more people to join us in the fight for home if we're going to have the impact that we need to have. So Climate Hambrose and the Société Générale are absolutely thrilled that Shelter is our corporate partner for three years. I have to say it was very tough competition. We had some amazing applications from a range of charities And ultimately, it was put to the vote of all my colleagues. So congratulations on the success of that. And as I as I say, it's a three year project with a very specific aim through the the GROW programme, getting real opportunity of work. We'll perhaps touch upon a little bit of the specifics about that in a minute, if we may. But first of all, um, I'd love to just ask you, what is the role? We've talked about philanthropists, but what is the role of a corporate partnership in supporting Shelter strategic ambitions. Corporate partners make a real difference to us because they engage with our work in a totally unique way. So you have colleague volunteering, they can unlock the power of their employee base and customer base sometimes to join us in the fight for home. We have uh, our corporate partners volunteer and a lot of them have unique skill sets that are incredibly useful to us. And, you know, each corporate partnership is unique. So it depends on what the employees of that particular organisation want to do. But we can always find opportunities for people to get involved. And it's a really deep relationship. And I think the other thing is that, generally speaking, as you're doing with the GROW programme, which we'll talk about in a minute, usually corporate partners support a specific part of our work. And so they get really engaged with that programme. And that really helps us to develop our creativity and our thinking and really move a programme of work forward in a way that is truly groundbreaking because we have that kind of specific funding and focus on that piece of work. And that's also great for us as well because it really helps to have that shared kind of vision for for one aspect of our work specifically and that is usually what corporate partners bring because normally they're focused on a particular program Mm. it's very interesting because um, a number of our clients either run private companies or they're on the boards of big public companies and it's very much about the culture of an organization now they want to make sure to attract good members of staff to retain talent they need to have a culture that also supports not-for-profit organizations and other you know um, businesses that are really putting back an impact into the local community so it's very very key, I think, to a lot of our clients and their business plans. Yeah. And and if I could just talk personally for a moment. So I'm constantly thinking about how to improve shelter and how to become a better run 
organisation, how to improve our organisational culture and so on. And as a charity, actually, we have quite limited resources to devote to doing that. And one of the things that I've just find incredibly helpful is the relationship that I have with CEOs or other senior personnel in our corporate partners, just to get ideas, to bounce my ideas off. And, you know, that is incredibly useful to me and yeah, to my senior yeah, team because I don't have a lot of that resource, actually. Yeah, it's when you feel like you're two brands that are working together with a similar value base, it's an, an incredibly valuable relationship on on lots of different levels, actually. If we could just touch on the specific project, the, the GROW project that we are working with you on for the next three years... GROW stands for Getting Real Opportunity of Work, supporting people who have been homeless into paid work placements as trainees within shelter for a year. These individuals use their own experience of homelessness to help others to rebuild their lives. They take on roles as peer mentors and provide specialist housing advice within shelter's services team. And... On top of that, over 90% of them go into employment or education after the programme. So, Polly, what makes this programme so successful? Well, this programme absolutely transforms the chances of people who've been through unimaginable hardship. So people who have lived experience of homelessness and the issues that often are kind of both a cause and a consequence of homelessness. So I'm thinking about experience of the criminal justice system, uh, substance misuse, family breakdown, domestic abuse, as well as all of them have homelessness experience in common. But they have a whole range of other very difficult experiences as well. And one of the biggest reasons why they can't get back on track is because they can't get jobs. And some of that is because of the issues that they face, that employers don't want to employ people with those backgrounds. Uh, And part of it is that they are not able to present their strengths and skills in a way that makes them attractive to an employer. So what we do over a year is we value the individual, we understand their diverse skill sets, We value them for who they are and for those experiences. And we help them in their work in shelter. They not only change their own lives, but they also change other people's lives because they use their own experiences to achieve really meaningful impact locally and create real change. And initially, a lot of people are motivated by saying, you know, I just don't want other people to go through what I went through. But then it isn't only about that. That's the kind of confidence bit, the skills bit. But there's a formal learning and development programme as well alongside that, which helps people to build the skills and confidence that you need to be an employee. So if you've been out of work for a long time and you've been in a very difficult place in your life, the way you need to live your life if you have a job is very challenging. And some of it is about through that year, taking people from a place where they find that very challenging to a place where it becomes second nature, just like it is to me and you. So we're able to sit in a meeting and express our point of view. We're able to turn up every day at the same time. We're able to organise our workload. Well, by the end of the 
training period, that's what we are also helping people to develop. And a lot of people go on to work at shelter. So, for example, um, there's a, a woman who's just joined us called Roxy. She joined as a trainee in our Through the Gate service. So that's a service for ex-prisoners. And she was supporting people who are under probation supervision in Lancashire, helping them with their housing issues. But she's now working for shelter permanently as an involvement officer, helping us to formally integrate the experience of our clients into the development of our services. But not everybody goes on to work for shelter. So we also make sure that people are ready for employment outside shelter as well. And the other thing is we want to broaden the range of experience that we're offering. So that's one thing that one of our ambitions for the scheme is that, you know, we're a large, complex organisation. We actually have a host of opportunities. We have campaigns, we have media, we have design and creative, we have fundraising, we have finance, HR. So there are lots of other bits of the organisation as well as our services that actually we need to open up more to the Grow Trainee Scheme. So it's also about the opportunity to do that. And yeah, 90% is a really high success rate in terms of going on to employment. So we're really, really proud of that. And I think in sort of one sentence, the reason for that is the focus on the individual and the development of that specific individual. Fantastic. So we've touched on the issues around the housing emergency, the growing inequality, the role of philanthropists and corporate partners. And I suppose I really want to leave Polly with a simple question. Uh, If someone wants to support shelter, what can they do? Well, that's the question I love to answer. (laughs) Uh, I love telling people how they can support shelter. Um, So um, the most obvious thing is go on our website. It's really obvious how to support us. We need people to join the fight for home. We need people to join us as campaigners and to pass the message on, please tick the box that says we can contact you. We're not going to bombard you, but we can't mobilise people if we can't contact them. Obviously, we always need donations. But what I would say overall is to individuals, and particularly for two philanthropists, if you want to learn more about shelter, the best thing you can do is visit one of our local services, one of our local hubs, and or there are some really interesting events coming up that I'm going to be hosting or attending. Some of them are hosted by our celebrity ambassadors. But there are some really interesting events coming up where you can learn more about shelter in a more kind of immersive experience than just listening to me. So you can talk to our frontline colleagues and people who we work with. And that's a great introduction to who we are as an organisation. And I'm so proud of Shelter that I would say that if you visit one of our local services or you take part in one of our events, you will want to support us because we actually really are changing things. We're not just sitting around talking about how bad they are. Fantastic. Polly Neat, CEO of Shelter. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Wealth Chat. Do make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you're notified as soon as the next episode is available. Until then, thank you again to Polly Neat and to you for listening. Goodbye. 
This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwert Hambrus Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited Guernsey Branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.